0: Your book club, the hood, the good, the Derek. I'm Derek. <laughs> I feel like I feel like that's like that song. That was gonna be my opening music. I didn't feel like it was good enough for me. Like, I don't feel like a lot of things are good enough for me, and I love that music. I just didn't feel like it fit the motif of the show. But, because I like y'all motherfuckers, and fatherfuckers, you know, and and non-binary fuckers, like, you know. I'ma give it to you. So. Ratchet Books. I'm Derek. Hood classics. Good classics in your face. See, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't want to do it no more. Fuck that. 916-633-1537. Do I really need to go through this every week? Because Not because I don't get voicemails. I do. I get voicemails all the time. This bill is due. Your lights is about to get turned off. You forgot to pick me up from class again. I don't get money from y'all. About the show. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I got one about the show. And it was like. Hi Derek. This is Derek. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. And I was like that's great. Because it was me. Um, Yeah 916-633-1537. I don't think I need to do this stuff. Quite simply because. If you're listening to this show and this isn't your very first, if this this your very first time listening to Ratchet Book Club, like period, you should go back to episode one of whatever series you're in. That's the rule. Like, you shouldn't just start in the middle. That's that's weird. That's wild. Like, you wouldn't start in the middle of fucking Serial or Mogul. Don't start in the middle of this. Jeez, etiquette. Wretched and Ratchet at gmail.com is still a banging-ass email address, and it's mine. Um, ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Holler at me, I'll holler back. I haven't hollered back as much recently because I've been busy. Don't judge me, judge yourself. I'm popular. I'm head of the class. I'm popular. I'm the quarterback. I'm feeling real musical. Like I have other podcast ideas in my head. And one day I might just bust out with them. And y'all will not be ready. Anyhow. Uh, I think I said all the ways to reach me. Y'all should know it by now. Anyways. I left y'all in a cliffhanger for yo ass. Didn't I? I left y'all. And that's why I'm still talking. Because I know y'all want to know what the fuck happens to Kit. I know you do. Become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash single simulcast. Also, you can help me to get money for books and movies at buymeacoffee slash sscast. And you can tip me at goodpods.com. It's an app. It's on your phone. It's on your iPad. I got it on both. On my Android and on my iPad. I have one of each because I'm talented. And I don't bend to social norms. Just so you know, all my tips go to Venmo. But just the tip. I know it's childish, but fuck it. It's a a show called Ratchet Book Club. What the fuck did y'all want from me? I am not suppressing that goddamn joke. Go fuck yourself with just the tip. So anyways, chapter 52... What happens is that, I I really want to reread that first chapter like chapter 51, just so y'all can get the whole, I know, I fucked with y'all enough, I'm kidding. Chapter 52. What happens is that Johnson risks a peek out the window and sees Bobby Z chasing up the path after the boy. And he hears Bobby yell, stop! And he just knows Bobby ain't coming through that door. But Johnson figures he can shoot over the boy's head and hit Bobby smack in the chest. So Johnson cradles the gun in one arm and pushes the door open with the other. He's standing in the doorway lifting a rifle to his cheek when there's this moment of stillness like the world is frozen. And then the blast takes his head from his shoulders. Tim keeps pushing through the light that's turned from white to red as the cabin catches fire. Half blinded by the explosion, he screams, KIT! KIT! And a couple thousand nights go by until he hears the boy cry, BOBBY! Tim has an image of the boy maimed, legs blown off, or arms missing, or face burned to jelly. And it's at least another thousand hours before he has KIT in his arms, and the boy is crying, and his hair is a little singed, but he seems alright. And for some reason, Tim keeps repeating, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And Kit just keeps sobbing, but between gulps says, it's okay. Are you okay? Tim asks. I I think so. Thank God, Tim says. Thank God. He holds the boy tighter and is sitting in the wet grass cradling the boy to his chest when he hears the motorcycle pull into the parking lot. Recognizes Boom Boom straight away and realizes he has problems he didn't know he had. Boom Boom comes waddling up the path, a beer bottle clutched in one fat fist. It's the beer bottle that kills him, because when he recognizes Tim huddling on the ground, the smile comes off his face, but he forgets he's holding the bottle as he goes for the gun in his belt. In that second, Tim shoots him three times, the silent pistol sounding mute and hollow against a crackling fire. Boom Boom finally drops the beer bottle. Then sits down heavily on the line and tries to figure out why he feels so sick and tired so quickly. And he just watches as Tim Kearney runs by him with what looks like a large package in his arms. Boom Boom hears a car trunk open and close. Then hears his own bike start up and roar off and figures that he should do something about that. But it seems like so much work to get to his feet and the fire is so pretty. So he just sits there staring at the cowboy boots on the porch and admiring his own handiwork. And that's the way the volunteer firemen find him when they get there a few minutes later. Kit's holding on to Tim for all he's worth. And it's like that first night they escaped from Brian's. Except this is no dirt bike, but an all-American Harley hog. And Tim is pushing it down that mountain road. Because Tim Kearney knows the Angels will never quit now. And Taro won't quit. And Garuza won't quit. And there isn't going to be any new quiet life in Oregon. Not for Tim Kearney or Bobby Z. Or for the kid. So Tim pushed the hog down the mountain road and then heads west. West and north and west again. If there's no escape from being Bobby Z, he'll just have to be Bobby Z. Be Bobby Z and beat them all. Become a legend. And that means going to Laguna. Chapter 53 Under normal circumstances, Tad Garuza would have considered attending Raymond Boom Boom Bogey's wake a pleasure trip. Few things would have improved the soft California evening better than seeing that slimy bag of guts laid out in a cheap casket while his mourning brethren drank, smoked, and fucked around him. Garuza would have enjoyed tilting a couple beers, insulting the assembled scumbags and then tripping back out into the night. But the evening is spoiled for him now by the knowledge that Tim Kearney is again on the loose and that everyone who gets too near to him ends up taking a dirt nap. Tim's leaving bodies scattered behind him like little Johnny Stiffseed, a regular one-man crime wave, and Grues is not too thrilled about a prospect of explaining why he turned this career felon loose on the public. And someone's bound to figure it out, because Timmy Boy is leaving quite a trail. First you have the great Anza Barejo Desert Massacre, parts 1 and 2. Then an otherwise inexplicable fiasco at the San Diego Zoo. Then you have a quiet mountain cabin motel turned into a funeral home slash crematorium. The owner commits a very dicey suicide, shoving a gun through his own teeth and getting two shots off. Then you got a headless cowboy whose good old dead boy truck IDs him as one Bill Johnson, former ranch manager for known livestock merchant, the also late and unlamented Brian Curvier. Top that off with the body of Boom Boom, found sitting at the fire scene like he's roasting marshmallows, except that he's got three bullets in him in a tight pattern. Like, Garuza thinks with some pride, a marine might fire. Shame about Boom Boom, Garuza remarks to a silver-haired angel sitting on a stool by the casket, which is resting on two sawhorses. The angel is old enough to look like he plays for the Grateful Dead, but Gruza knows that Duke, as the head of all the Southern California chapters, has serious juice, which is why Garuza's here in the first place. Fuck you, Gruza, Duke says. Did I mention I fucked your mother and your sister? My mother's dead, and my sister's a lesbian, Gruza answers, so it sounds like you. He reached into the cold water of the garbage can, pulls out an icy bottle of Red Dog. Do y'all remember that shit? I mean, I never drank it, because who the fuck would drink a beer called Red Dog? That just sounds like drinking a beer that's called Don't Drink Me, Bitch, I'm Gross. I wouldn't drink a beer called Don't Drink Me, Bitch, I'm Gross either. That's like drinking a beer called Devil's Asshole. Do you know people eat hot sauce called Devil's Asshole? Like, why in the fuck would you do that to yourself? Hey, what are you putting on your taco? Mild sauce. Bitch! I got Devil's Asshole. (laughs) The fart sound would be part of the commercial. I'm gonna grow up now. Snaps a lid open on one of the casket handles and says... Boom Boom makes a lovely corpse, though, don't you think, sweetheart? What brings you here, Gruza? Other than the joy of seeing Boom Boom laid out, Gruza asks. I'll tell you, this has been a banner year for wakes. First stink dog and now Boom Boom. I'm telling you. Kearney's taking out the whole family, huh? Duke glares at him. Kearney did this? I thought you knew that, Gruza says. I thought you knew everything, Duke. Gruza lets him sit with this and takes a look around. It's not a wake any Polish boy will recognize. Music blasting, booze and reefer reeking. Over in the corner, two mamas are dispensing blowjobs, while in another corner, there's a polite line for a gangbang. Although Gruza can't see the bangee. Did you set Boom Boom up? Duke asks. No, I set Kearney up. Garusa answers. For boom boom. But the dumb prick fucked it up. I have to tell you, Duke, and not to speak bad of the dead, but I think the Bogie family stands about ankle deep in the old gene pool, you know? He drains the beer and reaches for another. Help yourself, Duke says. Thanks. Garusa wipes his wet sleeve off from the edge of the casket. I were you, Deuce? I look around Laguna. They only got homosexuals in Laguna. Yeah, well, to this date, this homosexual has greased the entire Boji family, half a fucking tribe of Indians, and some cowboy from East County who was supposed to be a pretty tough hombre, Gruza says. So when you're cruising around Laguna, watch your ass. You know where he is, why don't you just pick him up? I don't want him picked up, Gruza says. I want him dead. Duke smiles. He has chipped front teeth and long canines. Makes him look like an old wolf. We can make him dead. That's what Boom Boom said. Boom Boom went out alone. So, we're going with an army. Garusa tosses the empty bottle into the casket and walks out. Chapter 54 Tim finds a trailer on the beach. It's like a mobile home, he thinks. Not much different from the one he grew up in, or failed to, in Desert Hot Springs. A fucking mobile just like any trailer park trash will live in, except this one sits on the beach in El Moro Canyon. Sits among about 20 others in an isolated curve where the beach rounds into a huge rock cliff. And on top of the huge rock cliff is an enormous white house with two story glass windows to look over the ocean on three sides. So it's a little different from the mobile home where Tim grew up, or failed to, which had a view of five other mobile homes and a junk car lot. Anyway, it's real pretty there. The ocean's pretty, the beach is pretty, the big rock cliff is pretty, and Tim Kearney is finally living on the beach. Which is a bitch, Tim thinks. I gotta have half the world trying to kill me before I finally get to live on the beach. It's taken him some time to get up there. After racing off Mount Laguna, he dumped the motorcycle in Carlsbad and caught the late Amtrak train, which he rode to San Juan Capistrano. Kid asleep most of the way and real quiet anyway. Tim got off the train in San Juan Cap, walked a couple blocks in the barrio, and in 45 minutes flat had the pink slip to a rebuilt 89 Z28 muscle car which maybe even had other owners who at one point in time had reported it missing. Then Tim drove down to the Pacific Coast Highway through Dana Point, Monarch Bay, Salt Creek, Aliso Niguel, South Laguna, and into the town of Laguna Beach. Gets weird fucking vibes in Laguna, like it's, you know... Bobby's Town and Bobby's Ghost is hanging out, and Tim's a little spooked by everyone he sees, especially in the all-night 7-Eleven where he buys a couple of hot dogs for himself and a bean and cheese burrito for Kit. They get back in the car and drive north out of town until they spot the sign for El Moro Canyon and Point Reef Beach, and there's a dirt road that jogs back north at a sharp angle and takes them to the back of the mobile homes that line the cove by the rock cliff. They find number 26. And it's basic but well kept. A kitchen with a sitting room. Two small bedrooms and a bath. Nice covered porch on the beach side. A nice getaway. And Tim can't get it out of his head that this is where Bobby and Elizabeth used to come and screw. And it must have meant something to Bobby because he holds on to it. Tim figures that because he is Bobby now, the place belongs to him. And it'll be nice to live in a place like this. This place would do him just fine, man. Simple. Simple. Basic and on the beach. And there's a school right across the road that he could like walk Kit to. Maybe he could even learn to surf and teach Kit. Who should be like a natural, right? And it's then that Tim figures out what the place smells like. Wax. Surfboard wax. And Tim figures Bobby just coming here to chill before he split. place to get away from being the great Z. And just sit here and wax your board and go out and ride the waves and come back. Sit on the porch and have a cup of coffee. Watch the sun go down. Maybe then go back into the bedroom with Elizabeth. And I can get into that life. Make dinner for the kid. Sit down and eat. Talk about school and surfing and comic books and shit. And Kit would grow up to be one of those cool California kids, man. Kid who grows up on the beach in Maximum Cool Laguna. I have to cut this fantasy shit out, he thinks. There isn't going to be any staying here living here, walking kid to school, surfing and bossing a beautiful woman with a long back, flat stomach, and shiny hair. Okay, so... If y'all don't know about my voice, I'm black. Hi. I probably lost, like... Nah, I'm kidding. But you can give me a pre... uh, A postemptive, like, uh, 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 a after-the-fact donation uh, for Juneteenth. Motherfuckers. Um... I can't imagine anybody in this day and age saying a long back is sexy. I need that ass. I need to have it in my hands. I need to squeeze it like a stress toy. Yeah, now know what I'm saying. I need that ass in my hand. And I don't want to talk to long back Johnson. Long back. Like, that's just another way of saying no ass. Like... I've seen people, and it's always weird to see it. And I don't mean to body shame people, but I I, 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 their back goes all the way into their legs. And then there's just like this little, like, two inch crack. And I always wonder, how do they wipe their ass? Like, look, long ass back. They're like five foot six, and their back is like four foot three. <laughs> Flat stomach and shiny hair. That's what we're looking for. I like long backs and I cannot lie. Like, who the fuck? Get the hell. Long back. Whew. They're just going to be getting stiffed out unless I can find what I need to get to Quaratero. And then there's still Gruza and the Angels and maybe now this fucking Monk. So what I need to do is be thinking about how to find out what I need to find out and then get the fuck out. And get the kid back to his mom, which is like where the kid should be, I guess. So how to learn what I need to learn, Tim is thinking as he puts Kit to bed and sits beside him. Same old Tim Kearney, man, behind the learning curve again. And I guess what I have to do is call old Monk and find a way of getting him to tell me what he knows. And Kit, poor little bastard, has hardly said a word since almost getting blown up and like, big surprise, right? You okay? He asks the boy. Yeah, Kit says, kind of defensive, like he wouldn't admit it if he wasn't. What'd you see back there? Tim asks, hoping the kid saw a bright white light and nothing else. Because Tim can still see Johnson's headless body in those cowboy boots. And while he saw a lot of that shit in the Gulf, it's nothing the kid needs to have in his head. Nothing, Kit says. This will be over soon, man, Tim promises. I'll get you back to your mom. I don't want to go back to her. Yeah, well, we'll talk about it, okay, Tim says. You better get some sleep. I'll be right here. He gives the boy a hug and a kiss and feels the kid's lips on his cheek, which feels like real weird but alright. He's about out the door when he hears kid ask, Why do people want to kill you? Tim's not real sure himself, but he has a general answer to hand. Because I've done some bad things in my life. You fucked up? Don't use that kind of language, Tim says. But, yeah, big time. Seems to satisfy the kid. Seems to be enough. I've done that, kid offers. It's generous of the boy to say that, thinks Tim, who hasn't been real familiar with generosity in his life. It'll be okay, Kid adds. Then he rolls over and pulls the blankets over him. Which is real nice of the boy to say, Tim thinks, but he'll be damned if he knows how it'll be okay. He knows he has to get out of there, meet Monk again and find out what he knows. Get his hands on enough money to get lost and stay lost and deliver the kid back. All the which is impossible enough, but really impossible with a kid in tow. And I'm just not going to bring him into the line of fire again, Tim decides. I know that. So he's going to have to find a babysitter. And he's sitting, looking out of the window, watching the moonlight on the waves, and thinking about how the hell he's going to find someone he can trust when there's a soft knock on the door, and it's Elizabeth. Chapter 55 Tim puts his forefinger to his lips and says, The kid's asleep. She shuts the door softly behind her and takes off her vinyl windbreaker. tosses it on the old couch under the window. How'd you know I was here? I didn't, she said. I've been driving by checking for lights every night. She looks great. Got on some silky kind of emerald green blouse tucked in the stonewashed jeans. Boat shoes. No socks. No ass either. Long back. Skinny little gold necklaces dips down from her throat to the rise of her breasts. How's Kit, she asks. Pretty shook up, he answers. You mind if I sit down? I don't mind. She sits down on the couch and her jeans crease into a sharp V between her legs. She stretches one arm out along the back of the couch and says, Don Huertaro is looking for you. No shit. There's that sparkle of laughter in her eyes that for some reason makes him mad. So's Brian, for that matter. She shakes her head. Brian's dead. No shit. No shit, she answers. Huartero gave Brian what he wanted to give you. He left him naked out in the sun for a few hours, then tied him to the bumper of a four-wheeler and took him for a spin through the cactus. Be glad you weren't there. I am. Ward Terrell sent Johnson to hunt for you. Johnson found me. He watched her eyebrow curve into an elegant arch of curiosity. But a booby trap took his head off before we had much of a chance to talk. She looks really alarmed. Christ. Kit didn't see that, did he? I don't think so. Christ. He sits beside her on the couch. Casadel del Brian is all burned down, she said. A flicker of something, suspicion maybe, flicks across his stomach and he asks, How did you get out? Well, Brian beat the shit out of me, and that seemed to satisfy Don Huertero. He just let you go? No, she says, looking him in the eye, giving that cynical, intelligent, kind of angry look. He didn't just let me go. What does that mean? You know what that means. They're staring at each other and then he's watching his hand reach out and undo the top button of her blouse. And he's wondering like, where'd that nerve come from? But she doesn't do anything to stop him. So he does one button at a time and reveals her breasts in the skinny black bra and feels that wonderful heat come over him. He lifts one beautiful breast from the bra and then he's leaning over and softly kissing a nipple. And he feels her long fingers on the back of his head as he feels the nipple get stiff and fat on his tongue. He leaves it and pulls her blouse from her jeans. Then slides down to the floor and takes her shoes off. And he's still wondering who the fuck is this person doing this because it ain't me. But he gets the shoes off. And she's still leaning back into the couch. And he slides her jeans off her wonderfully long legs. And then the black panties, which are so soft, even against the soft skin of her legs. He falls them down with his eyes, off her feet, and onto the cheap rug on the floor. And then he looks up to see the precise triangle of auburn hair between her legs. He slides his hands up her legs to gently part them and then dips his head down. Her hands grip his shoulders as he touches her with his tongue and licks up and down as slowly as he can. Even though he's trembling and hard under his own jeans, he licks her slow and soft because she's been hurt. And he figures she deserves slow and soft. And besides, he can taste the rewards of his patience on his tongue. And she's making soft noises because the kid is asleep in the other room. But the soft sound of her voice can make him come as he parts her lips with one hand and flicks at her with his tongue. Taking his time still, because this is a fine place to be. And he looks up at her face and can't believe that it's him doing it to a woman this beautiful and she's liking it. And he watches her face as she has one hand on his shoulder and the other pinching her nipples. He's still watching her face a few minutes later as she twists away but also into his tongue. And he puts a finger into her and gently presses inside the top of her. And he like can't believe it, but he comes at the same time she does. But she takes his prick, which is such a... She takes his prick semi-hard and sticky from his jeans and he twists out of his clothes and quickly he's hard again and inside her and she pulls her knees up and back so he can be deep at first he cups her small ass with his hands but later they have their arms wrapped around each other tightly as they rock back and forth and this time she cries when she comes but keeps rocking and squeezing as he comes and he can feel the wetness on her cheeks as he lays his face on hers they're lying there soft and quiet for a while He feeling the warm dampness of her skin and listening to her breathing, and life feels calm to him for a change. He's feeling all calm and safe when she murmurs. So tell me the truth. About what? He's feeling sleepy. About who you are, really, she says. Which kind of wakes him up. Chapter 56 I'm Bobby Zacharias, Tim says. No, you're not. It's her fucking confidence that undoes him. He's sitting on the toilet watching her clean herself with a warm washcloth. How do you know, he asks, but it's not as much a challenge as it is a request for information. Baby, a woman knows, she says. Tim doesn't want to pursue that angle, so instead he says, How long have you known? Moment one. Moment one. She smiles him and nods. Which moment one, Tim wonders? Like the moment he came out to the pool at Brian's? Or the moment she took his dick out of his pants? But again, he decides that's not something he really wants to know. So he asks, How come you told me about Huartero? Why didn't you just keep your mouth shut and let them kill me? She towels herself off and starts to slide her jeans back on. It didn't seem fair, she says, for you to get killed for something Bobby did. What did Bobby do? She slips into her blouse and buttons it up as she says, You first. Me first what? Like, who the hell are you? she asks. And what are you doing running around pretending to be Bobby? And where's Bobby? She's looking serious for a change, Tim thinks. The mocking smile is gone and there's little wrinkles around her eyes. She looks older than he's seen her. Older and prettier. Did you love him? He asks. Once. Still? She shrugs. Tim takes a deep breath, then says, My name is Tim Kearney, and I'm a three-time loser. The DEA made a deal with me. Pretend to be Bobby so they can trade me for an agent the Hortaro is holding. She just stares at him, waiting for the other shoe to fall, because she asked him three questions, and he answered two. And he doesn't want to answer the third. He'd rather lie and tell her he doesn't know. But the woman did him a decent back at the old ranch, and she was a stand-up guy when Brian took a belt to her. So Tim figures he owes her the tough answer. And Bobby's dead, Tim says. He gets up, ready to catch her if she, like, faints, like they do in the movies. But she keeps her feet and gets right to the bottom line. How'd he die? She could tell from the tone of her voice that she thinks Bobby got whacked. And he's about to say natural causes, when he remembers that in the drug business, getting whacked is a natural cause. So he says, heart attack. You're kidding. In the shower, Tim says. The DEA had him, and they were going to swap him, and he died of a heart attack in the shower. Just like that. Just like that, he says. Then asks, you okay? She says, yeah, I'm okay. I just never pictured the world without Bobby. I mean, I haven't seen him for years. But he was always there, you know? Sure. She's talking now. Tim's seen it before on the joint. God doesn't say a word for months, and then he just goes on a jag. Starts just speaking what's in his head without thinking about it. Even when I was in trouble, you know, she's saying. You know, out of money, or some guy's hassling me, or the CHP finds a roach in the car. All I had to do was, like, call the monk, and it was taken care of. I was taken care of. And that's Bobby, reaching out from wherever the hell he is. Yeah. And I was there for him, too, Elizabeth said. I mean, I didn't, you know, see him, but sometimes he'd need somebody he trusted and he'd get word to me and I'd do the errand, whatever it was. Two-sided deal. And now he's gone. Right. Really gone. Uh Uh-huh. Tim's just making sounds, letting her work it out. It's like the world can't ever be the same again. And that's no shit, Tim thinks. For her and me both. So why don't you just tell them? she asks. Tell who what? Tell her Terrell you're not Bobby, she says. That Bobby's dead. He shakes his head. Won't work. There's been too much blood. And besides, it still leaves me with the D E A on my ass. Not to mention, which he doesn't, the Hell's Angels. No. I gotta work it out, Tim says. Make it right with Huar and then get my ass out of the country somewhere. How are you gonna do that? Don't know, he says. Anyway, you better take the kid back to his mother. She snorts. Olivia doesn't even know he's gone. Olivia couldn't care less. Anyway, he wants to be with you. So? He thinks you're his daddy. He knows, Tim asks, about Bobby? He's a kid, she says. Not a moron, and I just want to kick him right there and say that. Y'all gotta stop fucking treating kids like they're stupid. Just because they're kids. They listen to y'all all all the goddamn time and then you're shocked when they know shit. You're shocked when they repeat what you say. You're shocked when they act like you act. Kids are little kids. People, they are young adults, they are little kids, but they are still people. And they need to be treated like the respectful way that you'd want to be treated at that age. They need to be treated like, fuck you and that see no evil, hear no evil. Fuck you and that you're here to be seen and not heard type shit. Fuck you. Talk to your kids. Get them involved in your world. That way when they turn teenagers or they run into some rough shit in their life, you're not like, I never even saw this coming. They just clammed up and never spoke to me because by that time it's second nature for them to talk to you. Talk to your goddamn kids. Poor little bastard grows up knowing his dad is some sort of legend. Then the legend shows up and takes his side for once. Scoops him up and blasts him out of that lunatic asylum like some comic book hero he sees on TV. Who do you think he wants to be with? Christ, who turned you on? Well, you just can't play with a child that way," she says, shuffling back and forth. "Like you've been doing? That's right. So what are you going to do?" Elizabeth asks a few seconds later, after they've been staring at each other. "I'm going to go see the monk," he says. "If I'm going to get out of the country and support a kid and keep the kid safe, I'm going to need money. Lots of money. Money to pay off Forterno Money to run with, money to hide with, money to live on. And Monk's got the money, right? Bobby's money. Fuck that, Tim says. My money. I get Bobby's enemies, his problems, his blues, his child. I get his money. What about his woman, she asks. He looks her dead in those green eyes. That's up to his woman, he says. Then walks out the room while he's still feeling tough and strong. Figures that was about the best exit line he's going to get off. Elizabeth takes the warm cloth to her face, fills the soothing water and looks in the mirror. Runs her long fingernail down her face from forehead to chin and stares at the faint red market leaves. You've done some dumb things in your so-called life, she thinks. But letting this sweet boy out of Brian's was the dumbest. Letting him get away again would be... Well, dumb, 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 Elizabeth, she says into the mirror. What's the matter with you these days? You can't ball a guy without getting stupid and falling a little in love. Shit, she says. Love? As the lady says, what's love got to do with it? From the bedroom, she could hear the sound of the child's breathing. Chapter 57 Monk jumps a little when the hotline rings. See, he's jumping, y'all, because Bobby used to call him on the cell phone late night when he needed some money. He used to call him on the cell phone, but now he hears a hotline bling, and that can only mean one thing. Now he hears a hotline bling, and that can only mean one thing. That means that the kid is still alive. I I can keep going. Kid ran away with the plastic bag. Didn't get to see it, money didn't get tagged. Now Bobby's calling, this is all bad. <laughs> see, I could. I'm talented. It's not so much a ring as it is a purring vibration, but it still jars. He sets his latte down and picks up the receiver. You're dead. Bobby? Monk asks. Thank God it's you. Are you alright? Tim can't believe how smooth the guy is. He's standing at a phone booth on the public beach of Laguna listening to this shit, and he just can't believe what he's hearing. Anyway, he says, Monk, one of you guys tried to stick a knife in my back and you're asking about my health? Monk just ignores the accusation. Bobby, who were those guys? Who are Taro's people? I noticed you didn't stick around to find out. I was hoping to draw one or two of them off, Monk says. You know, split them up. Yeah, and how many followed you? We have to be more careful, Monk says. One of them got the money, Bobby, and the passport. I'm sorry, but what could I do? He had a gun. It's only money, right? Where are you, Bobby? So you can send someone? You bet, Monk says. Get you in a safe house until we can figure all this out. I figured it fucking out, Tim says. You ripped off a Wartero. Kept it to yourself. And the money. Monk's voice sounded hurt. Why would I do something like that? I don't know. Bobby. Monk's looking out the window while he talks. The marine layer's still in, but he looks down through the mist at the beach below the cliff and sees a woman playing frisbee with a kid. The child should be in school, Monk thinks. I want you to look me in the eye and tell me, Monk, Tim says. Look me in the fucking eye and tell me you wouldn't do something like that. I will welcome that opportunity. Cool, Tim says. Salt Creek Cave tonight, 11 o'clock. Be motherfucking alone this time. Salt Creek Cave, Monk asks. What is this, Bobby? Treasure Island? What are we, kids again? You know what I think, Monk? What do you think, Bobby? And there's like an edge to it, Tim thinks. Like the guy's willing to fuck with Bobby a little bit. Like the guy figures he has the juice. He can fuck with him. I think you're like a bank, Tim says. Like you've been taking care of my money so long, you get to thinking it's your money. It's all here for you, Bobby, Monk says metaphorically speaking. I mean, most of it is liquid, so you can have it when you want it. Other monies are in long-term investments, mutual funds, real estate holdings. I'm interested right now in the liquid, Tim says, which like better flow my direction. Some of it maybe ought to drift back to Hortero Well, render unto Caesar. Yeah, whatever, Tim says, not giving a shit about whatever the hell some Roman has to do with it anyway. You be there tonight. You bring me cash. You come alone. Are you a dead fucker? Capiche? I understand. Monk hangs up the phone and walks out onto the deck. The sun is starting to burn through the fog, and it's going to be a typically sunny Southern California day. Just another day in paradise, Monk thinks. Tim's sitting on the deck of the trailer watching Kit and Elizabeth goof around the beach. He's sitting there in these cool shades he picked up in downtown Laguna, and he's got his face towards the sun, which is like baking him. And he's digging on the blue water and surf that's so regular, it looks like someone's drawing a line of white chalk across a blue rectangle of ocean. This is Cool California. Which sounds like a really good podcast name. I mean, seriously, if I did a show about people in California that are like dope or whatever, I'd probably call it California Cool or California Soul or California Cool, something like that. Tim thinks that life, if he can hold on to it, is a pretty good thing. Kid's run around grinning. Kid can't throw a frisbee to save his life, but he sort of flings it at Elizabeth, who isn't much better, or is pretending not to be much better. She throws it back, and the kid goes running, chasing the rolling frisbee, and he's laughing like an idiot and screaming in delight when he has to chase a frisbee into the cold, ankle-deep water. And even a three-time loser... Officially anti-social career criminal like Tim Kearney knows this kid is sky high because he's got himself a real mommy-daddy-kid combination plate for at least a little bit and is making the most of it. Tim takes off his shirt and lathers his body with Bain de Soleil. He's just grooving on sitting in the sun, listening to the surf, smelling the salt air and feeling the cool breeze wash across his chest, and he feels like fucking relaxed for maybe the first time in his life. Knows too that it's dangerous to feel relaxed but doesn't care at the moment. Like tonight, he has to go back to being a scale and doing scale things. But right now, he's got himself a place on the beach and a beautiful woman and a terrific kid. And sitting in the joint looking at his life sentence, he didn't even dream that life was ever going to look like this. Then Kit notices he's relaxing and figures that's against the rules and calls him over to come play. So Tim puts up the expected token resistance and then trots down onto the sand and starts tossing the frisbee with him. Elizabeth's looking at him with sweet, sexy eyes, and the kid is just sky high as they do this family beach thing. Tim thinks like, thank you, Bobby Z, wherever the hell you are. Problem is, of course, that you could be getting royally fucked without even knowing it, and that's what's happening to Tim as he tosses the frisbee on the beach. Sometimes... You get remote control screwed just for nothing at all, just because that's the way the world spins. And sometimes it's because you fucked up in the smallest way. It's the latter that's happening now. A long way anyway from Tim's little seaside domestic scene. What Tim did to fuck up was that he shouldn't have bought a car in the barrio. Because what's happening right now is the kid that sold it to him gets the word that some serious people in East L.A. are looking for a guy who looks like the guy who bought the car. Paid cash and was in a big fucking hurry. No test drive, no haggling, no questions. Just money, the keys, and the pink slip, Essay. So the kid in the barrio in San Juan Cap thinks that maybe he can do himself some good and makes a call to a guy. And that guy makes a call. And that guy makes a call. And pretty soon, the kid's on the horn with Luis Escobar, who the kid knows as serious people in East L.A. So Tim's indiscretion gives Luis Escobar a description of the vehicle and a fucking license plate number. And he went of that away. And while Tim's having himself a good time on the beach, Luis Escobar is dispatching the troops in search of that vehicle. Luis does something else. Luis Escobar is a careful man. Luis believes in planning. Planning and the right tool for the right job. And he decodes that the right tool for this job is a cholo from Boyle Heights who isn't some game banging child, but a precision Matters pro. Name a Reynaldo Cruz. The point of Reynaldo Cruz is that Cruz can shoot. Cruz was the star of the sniper school at Pendleton. His Marine instructor says that Cruz can shoot the balls off a flea. Cruz goes to the Gulf with his unit and makes his bones picking off Iraqi soldiers from long range. Like one second, the soldier's walking around doing the Allahu Akbar thing, and the next second, he's like with Allah. Compliments of R. Cruz, Boy Sniper. DFN Cruz, man, was what the rest of the platoon called him. Death from nowhere. That night a coughed you, man. All hell breaking loose in the black sky and Cruz just lies there in the prone position like he's on his couch in the barrio, dealing death from nowhere. Plink in Iraqis like in a video arcade, except Cruz never runs out of quarters. Plink, plink, plink. One bullet, one corpse. And like DFN Cruz, is the all-time Mortal Golf Combat Champion. And cool. Maximum cool. DFN Cruz doesn't even sweat. In the fucking desert. Just puts that scope up to one stone cold black eye and plink! Death from nowhere. DFN Cruz is as crazy in his way as Corporal Tim Kearney, who's also a crazy fucker. Not a copji, DFN is lying in the sand plinking the Iraqis and Kearney's running around in the open like bullets can't touch him. Running around blasting away, throwing grenades, dragging the wounded off from underneath the Iraqi tanks. Like Kearney's out there yelling, MEDIC! At the same time he's blasting Iraqis with his free hand. And it was some video game out there that night. You got Crazy Tim and DFN Cruz on the same screen. Two Navy crosses for the unit that night, man. Kearney and DFN Cruz. Some crazy motherfuckers. Simplify. And those two like ripped up Kuwait City. Cruz is in fucking sniper heaven, man. Playing pop-up in those blasted buildings. Fucking Iraqi shows his head, and his head is like, bye-bye. And then DFN and Kearney start working as a team. Kearney is so loopy, he plays like bait, getting the Iraqis into a running firefight until one of them pops up to make the kill, and it's welcome to paradise, Ahmed. And Kearney thinks it's like funny, man. He comes back to the firing line all laughing and and Everyone figures Kearney's headed for another cross. And then he smacks that Saudi officer, and that's that. The Saudi colonel is beating the hell out of this Palestinian kid he finds hiding in the rubble. And Kearney just gets up from where he's eating his meal and puts the Saudi down. Like one punch. And the Saudi colonel drops. But Kearney's not finished because he like stomps on the colonel's balls. And the Saudis, they want to decapitate Kearney right there and then. It's like some old movie. The Saudi MPs actually pull out these monster curved swords and they're looking to sever Kearney's head from his body. Would have too. Except the D.F.N. Cruz is sitting back against the wall with his weapon across his lap and smiling and shaking his head. And the Saudis get the message that D.F.N. Cruz doesn't care who he kills. So Kearney gets to keep his head. But he sure as hell doesn't get another cross. And the brass them like an international incident or a public relations disaster by court-martialing an honest-to-God hero. So they settle for a DD, and Kearney becomes a civilian. So does DFN Cruz. Becomes just Cruz again and goes back to the old neighborhood. Where Cruz has like nothing to do because there's no friggin' jobs and he can't get into the police academy. And Cruz, he's thinking about becoming a mercenary and he's showing a classified ad from Soldier of Fortune to Luis Escobar one night. And Escobar... He says, basically, what do you want to go and work for strangers for? So Cruz goes to work for Luis Escobar as a precision tool. Escobar's been thinking this thing through. What Escobar thinks is that killing Bobby Z is a long shot, literally, because no one's going to get close enough to Z to do the bang bang thing in the back of his head because this Z is just too good. So it's going to have to be a long shot. A bullet that comes from nowhere. So when Escobar gets his lead on Bobby Z, he goes to talk to Cruz, who's hanging out waiting for his next assignment. Stand by, Escobar tells him. We're going to do this job right. Find this piece of garbage, throw a net around him, and then you can come in and do your thing. Death from nowhere. This makes Cruz happy, because he's very good at his job and takes a professional's pride and gets bored and unhappy when there's no work. Also, he has enormous respect for Luis Escobar, who is not only his patron, but also a man. Also, Cruz can use the money. He's saving up for one of those giant big screen TVs like they have at the sports bar. And he wants to hook up a monster Super Nintendo system so it's better than real life. Cruz misses the war. Tim doesn't. Tim would be perfectly happy to live the rest of his life quietly on that beach with Kit and Elizabeth even though he knows that isn't going to happen. What he doesn't know is that he screwed up this one detail. What's flirting around the edge of his consciousness is something else that just doesn't square. And that isn't about the car. It's way back on that first night on the border, when Jorge Escobar bought the farm. Tim can't dump this image of Escobar's brains bursting through the front of his skull. The front, man. Like he was shot from behind. From the US side. But this is just too fucking confusing for Tim to deal with at the moment. What well, with the sunshine, the woman, the kid, and everything. He just dismisses it all. So even as he and the woman and the kid go inside to make some sandwiches, he doesn't get that the world is fucking him in fresh and imaginative ways. 916 633 1537. Ratchet at gmail.com. Uh, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Leave a review on Podchaser. cool thing about that is that you can leave a review for separate episodes or the show as a whole, which is dope. Um, you can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Pocket Casts and other places. Um, leave a donation at Good Pods. If you're listening on there, go ahead and hit up my tip jar. Um... Buy me a coffee, which really buy me a book or a movie. At buymeacoffee.com slash SSCast. Uh become a patron member at patreon.com slash single simulcast. Yeah, that's about it. Thank y'all so much for listening. I appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm gonna holler at you later. Peace.